church family. And there, as, uh, when, whenever you have a group of people this size, it's sometimes hard to keep track of faces and names and names and faces. And we want to make sure that everybody is known and that we're able to call you by your first name. And so please, 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 if you need to update it, please update it. If there have been changes uh, in your family, maybe uh, kids have moved away and it's just uh, you and your spouse or any kind of, of thing like that, that that's happened with your family, please get that picture updated. And if you're new to our church family, maybe you've not been here uh, but maybe a couple of months or so, uh, it's time for us to update that directory and we want you to be inside of it. And so make sure that you get your picture made as quickly as possible. It's been another great weekend. Uh, we had a couple's dinner last night. Uh, I commend Richard Shaw and, and uh, his family ministry for all of the great work that they did. Food was fabulous. Fellowship was great. Uh, ben and a co-worker provided the entertainment last night. It was stellar. It was just a great, great night and a lot of fun. And if you've never been to one of those, sign up next year to go. It'll be during the week before, before Valentine's Day. And uh, we continue Family February this morning. And... I, I want to. I, I have to be really careful here because I'll start preaching the sermon that I did not bring, but uh, <laughs> could get off on very quickly here. When when you go into that fellowship hall on Sunday morning, you see all those families and all those little kids. It just warms your heart. And I I think that I I don't care how old you are or how old your kids might be. Every time we see those families and those little kids coming into our church building, we need to let them know that they've come among family. And we need to make them feel welcome and loved and minister to them any way that we can. And if you have a chance to stick your head in in Family February and see what Kirby and Richard are doing with, with, with parents of, of children, do it this month on Sunday mornings over in the fellowship hall. And when the call comes for you to teach children or to do something with children, then invest yourself in the future of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to stop right there because I'll, I'll start to get carried away. But I, you see those little kids come in and they love on you and you love on them and they are the future of our church and they need to know Jesus of Nazareth and they need to know that there is a God in a world like this. And I'm really thankful for all the work that's happening on the other side of the building. Let's pray before I keep going. Father, we're grateful that you do so many wonderful things among us and in this community. And Father, we give you glory for that. For you're great. You are so awesome and powerful. And you are always present in our life. And you're compassionate and you're merciful and you love, Father. Even when we don't deserve it, there is always... There is always repentance and forgiveness and restoration. We pray, Father, that our minds be driven more deeply into this love and this sacrifice and the grace that You give us through Jesus in order for us to be inspired to live a life that is worthy of that kind of love. And as we study the life of Abraham this morning, Father, we pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And You bless us, Father, with discernment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said. This year, as you know, on Sunday mornings and sometimes on Sunday nights, we're going through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, in order to know the story of the Bible better. And one of the things that we want to underscore a lot, especially at the beginning of this series, as we look at the Bible in its entirety, is that we as a church, we do not believe uh, a lot of things that are said about the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, of just a, a, 
an anthology of ancient documents. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Now, we began this series in Genesis. We looked at the first 11 chapters, that first major section of, of Genesis, and that has helped us to understand and to see how things came to be. The Bible begins with some of the most important words and the most important truth. That truth is God. In the beginning, God. God is the ultimate reality. He is the focus of all things. He is at the center of all things. And the Bible tells us not only that there is a God and that God is there, but that that God is creative, which brings us to the second fact of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the second big fact is creation did not just happen. It happened because of God's Word. And we read about how God created everything that is, that God created the humans in His image and put them in the Garden of Eden. And He looked in those first two chapters of Genesis and says, it's good, it's very good. But it doesn't stay very good for very long, does it? By the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, you have Satan coming in the form of the serpent and talking to Adam and Eve and getting them to believe his word rather than God's word, trusting his word rather than God's word. And they eat of the forbidden fruit. Their eyes are opened. Sin enters into the world and death on its, on its heels. And the first couple, Adam and Eve, are expelled from the garden. We get to the fourth chapter and we see the nature of sin. That sin is, is like pollution. It just goes everywhere and it taints everything that it touches. It corrupts everything that it touches. And Cain kills Abel, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to Lamech, who at the end of chapter 4 is bragging to his wife in a song that he, he hurt a man. He killed a young man for injuring him. And what we begin to see is that the world has become a violent place that the world has come undone, that the world is beginning to fragment, that it's a dangerous place, it's a violent place, and it's a vulgar place. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we read some of the saddest words you're going to read in the Bible. The Lord, verse 5, saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Evil all the time. The Lord what? The Lord what, church? Regretted. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth. And His heart was deeply troubled. Some of the other versions say in His heart, and in His heart He was grieved. And so God begins creation again. And He does it by bringing great flood on the earth and starting all over again with one man, one family, one righteous man and his family. They're the only ones that are saved. And as we read the account of Noah's flood in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, hope begins to, to build in our heart after seeing the devastation that sin has brought upon the world. And as our, our, our hope builds, we begin to anticipate that this is going to be when creation reboots and everything is going to be great. But the thing that we see again is that sin is so powerful and it is so great that the world becomes engulfed in sin because sin has broken it. Sin has broken the earth just as sin has broken the heart of God. And those first 11 chapters of, of Genesis culminate with the Tower of Babel 
where humans in their pride begin to build a tower because they want to get mano a mano with God. They want to be eye to eye, face to face with God. But God says that's not going to happen. And He scatters them across the face of the earth by confusing their language. Now, at the end of those first 11 chapters, there's a danger. And that danger is running over the top, skimming over the top of the genealogy that we find at the end of Genesis 11, that genealogy that Stephen read at the beginning of the Scripture reading. And the danger is to skim over the top of that, not to go very deep, just kind of get the name straight in our mind, and then get into the great story of Abraham, which forms the second major great section of the book of Genesis. Big mistake. The genealogy at the end of Genesis 11 is telling us of the end of mankind. That genealogy at the end of Genesis 11 is telling us of the end of mankind. Back in Genesis 4, after the death of Abel and the ruin of Cain, Adam and Eve have another son by the name of Seth, who has a son by the name of Enosh. And when we read at the end of Genesis 4, we read something special about this family. Seth also had a son, verse 26, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to what, church? Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. What in the world is that? Well, it's a Hebraism for worshiping God and recognizing God and acknowledging God. And what the writer of Genesis, Moses, is trying to tell us is that even though there's a lot of sin that's breaking up and fragmenting and making the world a violent place, Seth himself is not broken. Seth is not broken. Neither is Enosh. There is a family that is calling on the name of the Lord. But by the time you get to the end of Genesis 11, humanity once again has come to a dead end. That last family to know God and to call on the name of the Lord is beginning to lose it. Because what you see is that Seth in the genealogy, Seth leads to Noah. Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then Shem leads to Terah and Terah to Abraham. And Terah is kind of a special name. Terah means moon which is a very important name in the land of the Chaldeans where he is living. And if you'll remember from our study of, of Joshua two years ago, you'll remember a commentary that Joshua has at the very end of his life on Abraham. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all of the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, long ago your ancestors, including who? Terah, the father of Abraham and his brother Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. The last family to call on God is worshipping, according to Joshua, other gods. Instead of calling on the name of the one true God, they are calling on the names of gods. And on top of that, look at chapter 11, verse 30 of Genesis. It says that Sarai, Abraham's wife, is barren. It's kind of a funny little statement to put there, just in the middle of a genealogy. But Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the great commentators on the book of Genesis, says that it's an effective metaphor for hopelessness. That the end of mankind is coming, it's coming to a dead end. And that the the, the barrenness of Sarai, the wife of Abraham, is a metaphor for the barrenness and the hopelessness of mankind. But, chapter 12 and verse 1, 
God speaks again. And this is where Abraham begins. And there's going to be a theme that we see beginning with Abraham and really in Abraham's life, but it goes throughout the patriarchs that we're going to look at tonight, through Exodus next week, and through the entire study of the Bible. It is this. Faith is reborn and hope is restored. Now, you don't have to be a scholar in the Bible to know that Abraham has lived a gigantic life. He has lived a gigantic life. The three great religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, trace their ways some, somehow back to Abraham. Paul refers to him as the father of the faith. He lives a gigantic life of faith and teaches us much. But because of time and because of the expanse of his life, we're going to look at three events, the call, the covenant, and the child. Now, how does he become to us the example or the father of faith? Well, it begins with the call. It begins with the call. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the NIV that I just read from is, is a little bit weak on the Hebrew here. The Hebrew is actually two words, lech lecha, and it means, the King James, I think, has it right. It's get thee out. It's emphatic. It's an imperative word here. It is get thee out. God is calling Abraham out of a culture of many gods, therefore no God, therefore godless, to a place of blessing. Did you circle in your Bible on your outline the number of times that the word blessing or bless shows up? You know what Abraham is? Abraham, he is the first human being to live the beatitude life. He is the first beatitude person. He is being called to a life of blessedness. It's a call to faith. Now, how does that happen? Well, notice that God doesn't say where the land is. He calls Abraham, Abraham, yes, I want you to get thee out of Haran and to go to the land that I'm going to show you. Well, where is it? Well, I'll tell you later. That's kind of the theme of Abraham's life. I'm going to take you to the land. Well, where is the land, Lord? Well, I'm going to show you a little bit later. Another theme, kind of a backstory in the life of Abraham is the child, the son. And God comes to him when he's old and he looks at his body and he knows that he's old. And Sarai is old as well. And God says to him, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, well, I'll show you later. And then later on in the story of Abraham, he says, you know that child, your one child that you love, Isaac. Isaac, the son of your wife, Sarai. I want you to make him an offering. And Abraham goes, why? And God says, I'll, I'll tell you later. It's the theme of Abraham's life. The life of faith being reborn and hope being restored. God calls Abraham out of his natural surroundings. Calls him out of his home, out of his comfort zone, away from his family, to a place that God is going to show him. I mean, friends, the whole earth, the world is disintegrating because of sin. That's the result of not trusting God's Word and not obeying God's Word. And now God is radically calling a human being to trust Him. I'm going to take you to the land. Well, where's the land? I'll show you when we get there. He's saying, have faith in my Word. 
trust me, the Creator, the one true God, to take you to a place of blessing. Now when the writer of Hebrews is reflecting back on what faith means in his own context in the first century, and he thinks about the life of Abraham, and, and all of the unknowns that Abraham is entertaining in his heart and his mind and his soul as he hears the Word of God, but he obeys and he trusts. He reflects back and he says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know, finish it out, church, where he was going. It really helps us to see what faith is. Not only is Abram believing in God, but he's believing God. He's trusting in the promises. He's basing his life, everything that he has, his future, his present, everything, his name, he is, he is basing everything in his life on God. He is learning to live a life of trust, learning to live a life of faith, of obedience. Now every day in the world, the world that does not acknowledge God this is what they do every day. In the way that they chase after what they eat, the, their, the, the way they, they try to make themselves beautiful, the way they chase after achievement and acclaim, and, and all of these kinds of things that, that, uh, that we read throughout the entire Bible is something that we're not to chase. But when believers do it, who say that we know God and that we believe in God, when we live this kind of a life, it's a vote of no confidence to God. When we say that we believe God and that we know God, and yet we live outside of faith, we waver in our commitment to trust Him, then we blackball God. We give God a vote of no confidence. Do you know that one of the most insulting things that you can ever say to somebody, and it happens every day, is to say that I know you, but I don't trust you. Could you imagine what that is like when a, a wife says that to a husband? I know you, but I don't trust you. Or a wife or a husband says it to a wife. I know you. We've been married for a long time. I don't trust you. Abraham knows God and is trusting Him. And it's not going to be an easy journey, and Abraham needs help along the way to maintain faith when the crises arrive and that's why the second point is Genesis 15 and the covenant. Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. It is what forms the anchor, the anchor in Abraham's life and the anchor in our life. Now, anybody that's ever seen Gilligan's Island or has ever been out on a boat or knows anything about cruise ships knows that one of the most important pieces of equipment is the anchor. What is an anchor? Well, an anchor is that big, heavy metal object that's attached to a chain that's dropped through all of the swirling waters and the waters that are churning and buffeting the boat and picking it up and dropping it. And it's that heavy thing that gets all the way down through that moving, swift current water into the rock and stays solid and chains that boat down. Now, I think that the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 6 is alluding to the events in Genesis chapter 15. He has this in the back of his mind when he says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He what? Confirmed. He's already said it to make sure 
that it's clear. He confirms it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You you know, everything, everything in this life, everything that is whispered into our ear that is not God is just water. Everything but the promise of God and the presence of God and, and the Word of God and, and the, 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 the commands of God is just H2O. Our, our looks, our job, our money, our, our possessions are just, are just water that are going to go up and are going to go down. They're going to ebb and flow all the time. And God knows that Abraham is a guy just like us, so He wants to make sure the confidence that that Abraham has in the Word of God. And so, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, after he has told him about this son, Abraham believes the Lord. It's credited to him as righteousness. But because he's a guy like us and he's struggling with God's promises because he doesn't have the son, God says, here's how you can live and have an anchor that helps you keep your head above the ebb and flow of life. And in Genesis chapter 15, you go to like verses 9, 10, and 11. God says, Abraham, I'm going to do something really special here. I need you to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And I want you to cut them up, and I want you to separate them and form a path between them. It's kind of a gruesome scene, I know. But what God is doing here is basically what they always did in an oral culture when they needed to sign a contract. And so the consequence... What, 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 what you would do is you would cut this animal up and, and separate it and you would walk through it. The two principles of the contract would, or the covenant would walk through it. And both of them are saying in front of a bunch of witnesses that if either one of us breaks this covenant, this is what happens to the one who has broken the word, broken the vow, broken the relationship, broken the covenant. And so then Genesis 15, verse 12, after Abraham has done all of this and knows what's going on, and is, is, and is mesmerized by the fact that God would enter into covenant with him like this, there's a terror that comes on Abraham that crushes him to the ground because of, of uh, the smoking pot and the torch. Now, people debate the smoking pot and the torch all the time. When you look at the two Hebrew words they, th- that describe the fire and the smoke, they are the same words that are used to describe the fire and the smoke at Mount Sinai. And the same words that describe the pillar of God's presence fire by night and smoke or cloud by day. Basically, it's referring to the presence of God and it is something that terrifies Abraham. You know what it's like? It's like lightning striking the ground and holding its shape. And the sparks flying everywhere. And Abraham is trying to get so low to the ground. And if you've ever been in a fire, you know what that's like. When there is great smoke, you're trying to get down on the ground so that you can breathe. And it's terrifying. And this lightning has struck. And it's holding its shape. And it's going between those cut animals. And it's God going through that. Being faithful to His covenant. And His presence moves through the pieces. And God is telling Abraham that if He, that is God, does not come through with the promises... This is what's going to happen to him. It's what's happened to those animals. That God's infiniteness 
is going to become finite. He's going to become you know, captured by finitude. And that God's power is going to become powerlessness. And His immortality is going to become mortal. And what is impossible is going to all of a sudden be squeezed down into just the possible. In other words, the vow that God has made becomes the Word. Of, His Word becomes the anchor for Abraham's life and our life. And all the problems, all of I mean all the problems, church, that we face in this life come because we do not trust God. Why do we hate ourselves sometimes? Why do we hate ourselves? It's because we don't trust the love of God. And, you know, people are fueled on a lot of things. Some people are fueled on indignation. Some people are fueled on anxiety. Why? Because we don't trust the will of God or the love of God or the promise of God or the presence of God. We, we're, we're up and down every day because we're not anchored to the solidness of God's promises in His Word. Now there's just one more event in this life that re- reveals just how profoundly Abraham trusted in God and that is the child in Genesis 22. Very riveting story. Very much debated. And the reason it's debated is because of, of, of the profoundness of, of the story as it hits us emotionally. And sometimes we find ourselves, as we read this story, and this is, you know, this is the way a lot of people have taken it, it's very much debated because it is God calling us to live an insane life. Now, we don't have time to talk about all that's here, but we're going to fake, uh, focus on the main thrust, which is faith. And the issue of the Son which has been the backstory to the Abraham saga, it comes to the forefront again. And God calls Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, Here I am. And God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, one of the important things to note here is that God does not tell Abraham to murder Isaac. If so, I suppose that would have meant for Abraham to kill him right there on the spot. But God says, Abraham, your son Isaac is to be made an offering. And so they go. Abraham and Isaac and the servants and the Hebrew, the lads, to the mountain region of Moriah. And it's pretty fast-paced up to this point. But then, at this point, the narrative begins to slow down as they arrive at the mountain. And Abraham tells the servants to stay, that he and the boy will worship, and then he and the boy will what? Return. They make it to the top. And there, Abraham is ready to make the sacrifice. And God stops him and says, Abraham... Abraham. And Abraham says, Here I am. And God speaks to him about his faith and provides a ram for the sacrifice. The question is, how did Abraham do it? What pushes Abraham to the top? Is it grit? Is it gritting his teeth? It's the knowledge that this God, whom I'm anchored in, whose word is, is so true in covenant, 
that he will provide a way. And so the Hebrew writer, again reflecting back on the life of Abraham, says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises. He's not just believing. He's embracing the promises. Was about to sacrifice his one and only son. His one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Although the commandment was to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord, the real point of the act was Abraham's sacrifice of himself. That is, of his will and his wisdom with regard to his son Isaac. Abraham's trust in God was so profound that he believed that God would honor his promise to Abraham if it meant, even if it meant, God doing something impossible. Like raising Isaac from the dead. It was anchored. I, I, I am in awe of Abraham. I mean, how do you get that kind of faith? The Hebrew writer will talk about you know the thing that God is pleased with is faith. It's giving God the vote of confidence. But how do you get that kind of faith? I mean, I, you're my God. I understand that. I get that. You're, I'm anchored. But how can I be your person? Centuries after the time of Abraham, there was another who heard the call of God and obeyed. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when. Who? Say it. Christ. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Hear. I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And Jesus hears the call of God and obeys and leaves his native land at the side of the Father. And he leaves God the Father his native land, to come to earth. And we see God in the smoke of Genesis 15 walking through the cut-up animals. But you notice that He's walking through it alone. He walks through it alone. He never asks Abraham to walk through those cut-up pieces. God seems to be saying to Abraham as He goes through those pieces, I'll go through this for the both of us. That this is not going to be a cooperative effort. And God is going to take on the curse of the covenant for both of them, for He and Abraham. And then centuries later, the dark comes again, but a different kind of dark. And the Lamb of God is led to the cross and massacred because we did not keep our end of the bargain. And that infinite became finite. And the immortal became mortal. And the impossible became possible. 
God dies. Up in that region of the mountains of Moriah, in fear and awe of God, Abraham does not lose a unique and loved son. But upon the mountains of Moriah, some centuries later, in love, God does lose as a sacrifice His unique and beloved Son. All along, God has been asking us to anchor our lives in Him. And long before Jesus talked about the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, God was calling humans out of sin to go to a place of blessing that was at His side in trust and relationship and covenant. I don't know about you, but I'm just melted by by this. I'm so moved by the way that God would love us and help us to come to an understanding of at least a modicum of the profoundness of that love in such a way that it radically changes us and transforms us. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe God's Word has melted you this morning and you want to have faith and you want to declare that faith and you want to declare that God is your God that Jesus is your Savior, and you're ready to receive that Spirit in you as His seal and that earnest money of all of the promises that are to come. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If that describes you or any other way that we might minister to you this morning to develop our faith and to live as people of faith in this culture and in this world and in this time, we want you to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Will your anchor hold in the storms of light when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables...